We are grateful today to have Reverend Trudy White bring the message. She started a four-week series on Esther. That's it. Give her a warm welcome. Give her a warm welcome. She is the minister of our Markham Village Church of the Nazarene. And if you've got friends or relatives uh, living up that way, I want to encourage you to strongly, strongly direct them to, to the Markham Village Church where they will be blessed week by week through the teaching preaching of our beloved pastor. Amen. All right. Well, good to see you. We are continuing in our series. So let me just remind you of a few things. Last week, we began our study in the book of Esther, and we saw how Queen Vashti was removed from her position by King Xerxes, and then the search uh, was on to find a beautiful virgin to replace her. Mordecai, Esther's uh, cousin, uh, brought her to the palace for consideration. And I don't think he was motivated to do that on his own. I believe he was led by God so that the right person who would be needed down the road to save the Jews would be in place and available for God to use. We learned a number of lessons last week. Some of them had to do with, we learned about making decisions. And when we're making decisions, we should not uh, make them in a rash fashion or because we are pressured by our peers. We learned about relationships that influence us, about how to handle situations that are beyond our control, the importance of using our opportunities wisely. And we were reminded that God is always with us, and we were challenged to continue to trust him as we wait patiently for his plans to unfold recognizing that we are right where we are, where he wants us to be. The name Esther has a variety of meanings, and the most common meaning is star in Persian. In Hebrew, it means she searches out evil. It also means binding obligations and hide or conceal. Her Hebrew name Hadassah means compassion. And so when you look at all of these meanings, you can see that Esther really lived up to her name. The book of Esther tells of the circumstances that were essential to the survival of God's people in Persia. These circumstances were not the result of chance, but of God's grand design. And in the book, we clearly see that God is sovereign over every area of his life. I hope some of you had had a chance to read through the book this past week. If not, you can certainly catch up. But we see that God is sovereign over every area of life. We see it and we acknowledge it uh, from Esther's story. But my question is, are we convinced that God is indeed sovereign in full control over every area of our lives. And if we do believe this, would our lives, if we truly, truly believe it, would our lives look any different? Would we be living out our faith differently? Would the way we respond to the difficulties and trials of life be any different from how we are currently responding? You see, part of the problem as Christians is that we often say we believe one thing, and then we find it so hard to actually live it out. For instance, we may say, oh, I know God has forgiven me. And yet we find it so hard to forgive ourselves of certain things. 
or I know that God wants me to forgive others, he actually commands it, and yet at times we hold on to, you know, hurts and, and grudges. Or we may say, I know that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is self-control, and yet it only takes somebody doing something and we lose self-control and we flare up in anger. So you see, we, we have a way of saying we believe certain things and yet not living them out uh, practically. But if God is in control of every aspect of our lives and we believe that, then we have to be willing to fully surrender our lives to him and live obediently. With the removal of Vashti as queen and King Xerxes searching for a replacement, God placed Esther right where she needed to be in order to prevent the annihilation of the Jews. Mordecai was led by God, Esther obeyed his suggestions and advice, and both were used by God mightily to save the Jews. And we want to learn and be reminded that with God in charge, we can have courage. With God in charge, we can have courage. I believe the whole story of Esther and Mordecai speak to this. With God in charge, we can have courage. Do you need to hear that? You know, do you believe it? Amen. You know, are you living Amen. in that courage? There's so many frightful things uh, going on in the world that we need courage just to live and to face life. People today can often be very aggressive and rude and overbearing, and we need courage, you know, just to be able to engage them in a conversation. And sometimes we face a variety of needs, physical needs, financial needs, relational needs, um, whatever. And, and those needs can cause us to doubt God. They, they can paralyze us. And we really need God, the courage that God can give us to, to face them and to walk through them. You know, here at Rosewood, now that your mortgage is paid off, some of you are going to need courage to move on to phase, the next phase, right? Um, but with God in charge, we can have courage and move forward. And we just need to be reminded of it and to live it. Now, once again, do you believe that? Are you experiencing, maybe you're experiencing some kind of a trial or a challenge, and perhaps it, it leads you to being a little bit fearful. If so, I'm here to remind you that you don't have to face anything on your own. You know, even if there's not another living soul on this earth that you know and can com communicate with and be supported, you are not alone. You have the very presence of God himself in your life, and he will give you the courage that you need to face every day and to face it triumphantly, one step at a time, one moment at a time. And so when we don't understand what's going on or why things are unfolding the way that they are or why we find ourselves in a particular place or situation, we simply need to remember that God is in charge. He sees the bigger picture and has plans. And therefore, we need to trust him and submit to his leading and be obedient. And when we do, here's the wonderful thing. When we do, he will align our life's purpose to his and then we will be the beneficiaries of his sovereign care. Aren't you encouraged? Amen. We ended the last message by seeing that Esther had been presented to the king. Chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. Now, uh, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. 
So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and the officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Yep, I would say the king was smitten, wouldn't you? I would say he was infatuated, but divinely <laughs> inspired in his affection for Esther. And further, at the end of chapter 2, we find, we saw that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Chapter 2, verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Why did Mordecai sit at the king's gate? The gate of an ancient city was its center of commerce and legal activity. And so it is likely that Mordecai had gained a position in the king's service that kept him at the gate. Um, this is supported uh, by Mordecai's association with the court officials and his knowledge of the events transpiring within the palace. With Esther being made queen, she may have had some influence in getting Mordecai that position, we don't know. But usually one who sat at the gate was a magistrate or a judge. So basically, we find that Mordecai was at work with no direct contact with Esther. And the scripture says that Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. It is important to consider and follow the advice of those who are mature in the faith and have our best interest at heart. Amen. You know, sometimes taking advice from other people, not so easy. Sometimes it can be very difficult. We, like, we, we, are, we, we humans, we just like to be independent. You know, we think we know the best for us, and certainly we certainly don't want other people telling us what to do and how to live our lives. And really, it all boils down to pride. But with that said, we must be willing to um, be open to accepting the advice of others, especially those who love us, those who pray for us, those who have prayed before they've come to have this conversation with us, those who are seeking our well-being those who are mature in the faith and experienced and who genuinely desire the best for us. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of fools seem right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Yet it is still difficult sometimes to take advice from others, especially if we're in a position that's considered greater than theirs. You know, even when we're not sure what to do or where to go, there, there seems to be something in the human nature, in human spirit, that is quick to reject advice. And we get our backs up when people give us instructions. Now, I don't know about you, but I have some family members who love to give me advice. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you know, I have family members who love to give me advice. And, and to them, this is wonderful. But should I have an opinion from uh, my Christian walk or, you know, what I know of scripture or from my years of experience and, and want to give advice? Oh, no. Right? They're not taking that. And I find that so annoying. Totally annoying, don't you? <laughs> you know, but, but there is something in human nature that often leads people to uh, not be open 
to, uh, uh, to listening to some very sound advice from others. And so I want to challenge us. Esther was open to receiving instruction, advice from Mordecai, and that should encourage us to do that. Because when other people have our best interest at heart, I truly believe they're not going to lead us astray. They're not going to tell us to do something that's going to be hurtful to us or damaging to our ministry or anything like that. And, and so, uh, you know, and if you feel led to go and give somebody advice, make sure you have prayed about it carefully and do it in a very loving manner. Now, the good news is Esther respected her cousin and valued and trusted his, his opinion and followed his advice. She didn't use her position or whatever authority she had to disrespect him or disregard his advice. To reject godly advice, godly loving advice is foolhardy. To let pride get in the way could end up being very costly. If Esther had not kept her background and nationality a secret, as Mordecai advised, then she would not have been in a position to not only make a difference, but to actually be able to save the Jews from extinction. You see, there are times we must realize that others who have our best interest at heart and who are being directed by God may see the bigger picture, may know better than we do, and we should listen to them. That whole point is way too long for you to remember, so let me shorten it up, okay? Uh, if you trust that someone is directed by God, listen to them. That's the short version, right? Anyway, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he discovered a conspiracy. You know, sometimes people think, you know, other people are sitting, they're not paying attention, they're not hearing. Believe me, my mother has dementia, right? My mother sleeps except to get up and go and eat and have her shower, right? But when I'm over there and I'm talking to my dad in the other room and think she's sleeping over here, mm -mm, she can hear, especially if I'm whispering to dad, I put the chocolate above the fridge. Chocolate? <laughs> you know, so people are hearing. So, so Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. He's doing his job, and, and people are, you know, coming and going, and they're talking, and they don't realize he's hearing. And, and he discovers this conspiracy. He's now in a position to overhear what is being said by the palace officials, and he has access to the royal courts. In chapter 2, verse 21, it says, Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Why were they angry? No job satisfaction? I don't know. Did they feel they weren't being paid enough, appreciated enough, respected enough? Were they greedy for power and status? Who knows? But one commentator says that this plot is perhaps in revenge over the loss of Vashti. If indeed this plot is because the officials wanted revenge, then it's a great lesson for us because often when we don't get our way, when we feel passed over, uh, when we feel that we've been unjustly and unfairly treated, we want, if not revenge, then at least to get even, right? At least uh, to, to get something back. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So do not be vengeful. Do not seek revenge for yourself. Even in your disappointment, in your hurt, in your pain, trust that God can take that situation and turn it into something good. Make something good out of it. Learn from it. Use it to make yourself a better person. 
Don't let that hurt destroy you. Rather, let that hurt uh, raise you up. Amen. Amen. Uh, I, I forget, uh, Robert Schuller, um, Dr. Robert Schuller uh, had a book or something that says, turning your, your, uh, your scars into stars. That's a very long time ago. And that's what we need to do, right? Don't, don't let the scars cripple us, but allow the Lord to, to take whatever it is and turn it into something good instead of us uh, destroying ourselves and, and being bound up with all our energy and so forth, seeking to get revenge on others. But perhaps you hear, you know, perhaps you hear a family member or a friend or a co-worker talking badly about you. You know, our first reaction as a human being is to become defensive, oh yeah? And we become angry and, well, if that's what they're saying about you, let me enlighten you about them, right? And that's, that's a first response, but that's, that's a sinful response. It certainly hurts to have people say negative things about that. But how about before we jump to any conclusions, we go to the person, ask them, what did you say? And maybe I can clarify it and we can have a solution uh, to this without being aggressive or accusatory or getting in their face. You know, followed then by spending some time in prayer, asking God to help us to respond wisely, and then saying to the Lord, this has happened. I feel it's been unfair. I feel it's been untrue or unjust. But what can I learn uh, from this? How can you use this, Lord, in my life to make me a better person or to make me a more usable vessel for you? You know, human nature is tit for tat, right? You talk about me and I'm going to find a quick way to point out your faults and failures. And then it never ends. We end up uh, going around and around with broken relationships and a failure to live and to respond in a Christ-like manner. And you know oh, what the sad thing is? We don't even realize that when we do that, we are failing Christ because we're so focused on the hurt and we're so focused on, on proving that we are right and vindicating ourselves that we don't realize that our response is failing to represent Christ well. Anyway, Mordecai overhears the plot. He tells Esther by sending a message to her, who in turn reports it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And the king then launches an investigation. He finds out that he, it's true. They arrest these two officials, and they are hanged. And simply a note was made in the annals, in the official records. That was it. No public recognition or award given to Mordecai. Even so, he continued to faithfully do his job. And so from Mordecai's example, we are inspired and challenged, do the right thing. Do the right thing even when we are not rewarded for it. Mordecai wasn't looking for a reward or a promotion. He simply did the right thing. Unfortunately, today, when someone is in dire straits and in need of help, instead of doing the right thing, you know what a lot of people do? They whip out their cell phones, let me take a picture because I need to post this on Instagram or Facebook or something, right? Instead of doing the right thing. You know, we need to, to lend that helping hand. And sometimes, even in your workplace, you might become aware of certain things. The right thing might be to bring it to the attention of your boss. You know, people don't want to be considered that they're tattling. They don't want to be considered whistleblowers. And they may even be afraid if I speak up, I might lose my job or I might lose that promotion that I've been working so hard to get. But if we never speak up or if we never speak out, 
then others will continue to be taken advantage of. They will continue to be abused. They will continue to be mistreated. You know, there are some things we cannot change, but we should always be looking out for the well-being of others and looking for ways to help. I very much doubt that we will find ourselves in a position of discovering a plot of, or conspiracy to do evil, but we may find ourselves in possession of information that could save someone harm or embarrassment or hurt. If we do, we will have to decide if we will ignore such information, stand by and see how it's gonna unfold, or are we going to be proactive and pass that information on in order to maybe save somebody's reputation, their job, their marriage, their children, their life? Mordecai didn't think twice about it. He acted right away. Now, at this point in Esther's life, it's about four years uh, since she's been queen. And no reason is given, but in chapter 3, King Xerxes decides he's going to honor Haman. After these events, King, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamedatha. Say that with me three times, right? The Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Haman gets promoted to a position of authority, and he milked it for all it was worth, right? The king commanded that the other officials bow down to Haman, and I could just see Haman, he's just preening, right? And he's enjoying every second of it. You see, the desire to control others and receive honor was his highest goal. He was blinded by arrogance and self-importance, and so he demanded this show of respect from people. And while all the officials were bowing down, as Haman walked by, Mordecai refused, and he stood tall. He says, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay homage to him. Why did Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman? One commentary says, Mordecai refused to honor Haman because he recognized him as an enemy of the Jewish people. This also explains Haman's desire to destroy not only Mordecai, but all of the Jews. Another explanation is that even though uh, Jews customarily bow down before their kings, when Persians bow down before their kings, they paid homage to the king as to a divine being, and so as a devoted Jew, Mordecai would be obeying the command, you shall have no other gods before me. Charles Stanley says, Mordecai owed his allegiance to God alone and refused to bow in worship to any man regardless of how powerful he might be. His actions are a challenge to us today. We may not bow down and, and worship a king, an official, an idol, but we have a wonderful way of worshiping celebrities, right? Oh, maybe you're out and about and you're like, oh, is that so-and-so, right? My son was in a situation in a meeting with someone and next thing you know, the, the coffee shop filled up and people were whipping out their phones, taking pictures and <laughs> he just thought it was the funniest thing. Right? Because just to be a celebrity, we appreciate celebrities. They, they entertain us in, in a variety of ways. 
but we want to be careful that in the appreciation we don't worship them, right? Uh, we need to be careful that we do not worship anyone or anything but God. That means we don't give our adoration or our reverence. We don't exalt anyone or anything to a place of priority over God. Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Mordecai's actions were quickly noticed. How could they not, right? He would be the only one standing in a room or on a street when everyone else was bowing. And I wondered for a second if that made him feel self-conscious. And then I thought, no. You know, when you're doing the right thing, you will certainly know maybe perhaps you're the only one doing the right thing, but it doesn't make you feel self-conscious in a negative sort of way. His actions of not bowing down to Haman was really his uh, action of obeying God. He would have recognized that there would be consequences uh, that he could face, um, but he preferred to face those consequences knowing that he was honoring God. Charles Stanley says, if we fear the Lord, we have no reason to fear any other person, problem, or obstacle. Which reminds me that there are times we are going to be asked or even directed or commanded to do something that is contrary to our faith. At that time, in that situation, we are going to have to make a decision. God or man. The short version of that point is God or man, if you want to remember that point, right? But we need to make up our minds now, ahead of time, before we find ourselves in such a predicament. We need to make up our minds and prepare ourselves so that when the time comes, the decision's already made. No matter what situation I find myself, no matter what pressure is, is put upon me, I'm always going to choose to honor God despite the consequences. Well, of course, you know, Haman, found out that Mordecai refused to bow before him. His pride got injured. His ego got hurt. He was affronted. How dare he? And the scripture says Haman became enraged. He wasn't just angry. He was enraged. He became very angry and furious. And to add fuel to the fire, Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew. And not only did he want to kill Mordecai, but he wanted to kill all of the Jews. To understand Haman's anger and rage, we need to understand that Haman was a descendant of uh, Aga, king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were ancient enemies of the Israelites. And when you know that, you're like, wow, still carrying on the old feud, right? And in addition to this hatred that had festered in his heart towards the Jews, Haman, who loved having power and authority, now felt disrespected, and to be disrespected by a Jew, well, that was the worst of the worst. Haman realized that the only way to fulfill his self-centered desires was to kill all those who disregarded his authority. His quest for personal power and his hatred of the Jewish race consumed him. Haman's attitude was prejudiced. He hated a group of people because of a difference in belief and culture. You see, prejudice, as one commentator says, prejudice grows out of personal pride, considering oneself better than others. So think with me on this. We live in a time, I believe, 
where we should not be prejudiced Amen. or racist or at least or at least it should have been greatly reduced if for no other reason than the fact that we should be a much more enlightened people today, right? Than generations before. But it seems that we're not. And it seems that we're going backwards instead of forwards. It also seems that even people, whether they know of Jesus' words themselves, but know of his teachings that, you know, about loving one another and about being forgiving and accepting of others, all of that is being tossed out the window in favor of people's personal agendas and all the efforts of great leaders of the past to bring peace and reconciliation are being destroyed as others on all sides fan the flames of prejudice and racism. Even Christians, this is a sad thing, even Christians have not allowed God's love to permeate their souls and to permeate their hearts to the point of loving all people, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of economic status, regardless of anything else. And it is said, it is still said today, that in the United States of America on Sunday, and we're talking about in the church environment, that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. How sad is that? You know, I don't know if, if, if Jesus weeps in heaven, but I'm sure he'd be doing that when he looks at his church. You know, what happened to the belief that we confess that Christ loves all and he died for all? You know, I don't deny, none of us deny uh, past hurts and atrocities, but if we profess to be Christians, we can address the world's problems and their attitudes, but we can address our own. We may not be able to fix it out there, but we can fix our house, right? And so we don't deny past hurts and atrocities, but if we profess to be Christians, we have got to allow God to heal us and to help us to be forgiving. It doesn't mean we forget and say, oh, well, you know, well, that was then and it's okay. No, it wasn't okay. But we don't remember to hold on to the hurts and then teach it to our children and to perpetuate the same old, same old. We remember to learn so that we move forward, that we become better, that we teach the next generation to be better, to love their fellow human being, to love God by loving one another. And we, you know what happens when you hold on to prejudices and hurts and all of that? We give that attitude power power to destroy us and within our minds are always chaotic and we're always critical and we're always judgmental and and we don't have any peace in our lives and we're always looking at people and judging them and thinking the worst of them but that's what satan wants even within the church but when we allow jesus to heal us and to make us new and he gives us a, a new way of viewing people and that power uh, to destroy us is removed you see we need to cry desperately to God and ask him to give us love for our fellow man and to help us to be forgiving and accepting do not do not engage in or support any ideas ideology actions and behaviors 
that are prejudiced or racist. And I know we say we don't, but I'm telling you, we're human. And sometimes it slides in there, right? It slides in because we think, well, we are because, you know what? It makes sense that other person is so terrible, but it makes no sense to have that attitude as Christians, no matter how bad the other person is or people, whatever. Don't get sucked in by others who try to convince you of, of the merits of their claims. Don't let past hurts, full experiences, or the mistreatment you received at the hands of others, or the fact that you were not given opportunities, or you know that uh, uh, you had those opportunities taken away from you, perpetuate sinful, evil actions of intolerance, hatred, and worse. Don't let your pride cause you to be stubborn, self-centered, selfish, or hurtful to others, lacking in care and empathy and love. And certainly don't tell me you can't help it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And further, never forget that when Christ forgives us of our sins and his Holy Spirit comes to live in our hearts, he makes us new people, and he develops his character within us. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the fact of the matter is God's Holy Spirit gives us all of these things in our lives. And if we don't have those things, if we don't have love, if we don't have joy, if we don't have self-control, if we don't have any of that, it's not because it wasn't given to us. It's because we made a choice. We made a choice to reject the gift that God gave it to us. Amen. And the truth is, if we harbor prejudice, and if we are still racist in some way, it's because we choose to be so. And we choose not to allow Christ to do his work in our lives. He heals, he heals, he helps us, Amen. right? And when we get to heaven, it's going to be wonderful. Every nation is going to be bowing before the throne of God. Every nation, we're going to be there. And you know, that's the one thing I've always loved about uh, uh, being at Rosewood. I've been at Rosewood since 1983. United Nations. Amen. Potlucks are great. <laughs> My kids grew up here. They were in church from the second week of birth. I wanted to come a week earlier, but my husband said that was ridiculous. Anyway, but they grew up here, and I'll tell you one of Laura's experience. My daughter's now 30. She grew up with friends in this congregation from all over the place. She gets to high school. She spent the first two months coming home crying. I don't understand it, Mom. When I'm in class, they're friends with me, but when I go to lunch, everybody doesn't want to be friends, right? You've got this group in this hallway, this group in that hallway, this group in that hallway. And so they would talk to you in class, but when they get out in the hallway, everybody's segregated. You know? We need to do a better job in passing on our faith to our children and our grandchildren to allow the Lord to heal and to change this world. If we as Christians don't do it, nothing's going to change out there, right? Boy, did I get off topic. Anyway, let me speed this up. Otherwise, you'll be going, man, we're never having her back next week, you know? All right. Well, in the fifth year of Esther's reign, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, it was Passover. And Haman, he cast lots to determine the best day to carry out his decree. That is, his plans to exterminate all the Jews in the land. 
And there is irony in the fact that the month of the, that the Jews uh, were celebrating Passover deliverance from Egypt is also the month that Haman begins uh, plotting their destruction. And so he plots and he schemes and he comes up with a plan that was going to appeal to the king's vanity and pride. And he goes to King Xerxes and probably tells him, you know, really how wonderful he is. Oh, you're such a great king, you know. But then he says, there are certain people dispersed and scattered amongst the people in all provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. The name of the people Haman wishes to destroy is slyly omitted in this blend of true and false. The Jews certainly had their own customs and laws, but they were not disobedient to the king. I find it's always amazing how people can pervert the facts and twist the truth to suit their own agendas. Haman ingratiates himself with the king and he makes it look like he's the only one looking out for the king's best interest and that in fact, really, what I'm suggesting, I'm just trying to protect you, my dear, wonderful, lovely, majestic king, you know? Before we are persuaded to do something that has long-term consequences and affect the lives of others, we must be careful not to simply go on the words of others but to investigate and to get all of the facts and to sort out fact from fiction before we come to a decision, before we act. In other words, the shortened version, get the facts before you make a decision. You know, sometimes in the news, we, we hear about somebody who's accused of something and everybody jumps on that bandwagon and condemns that person only to find out after there's been an investigation that no such thing happened and the person was innocent, but by now, um, that accused's reputation has been destroyed and his life's been destroyed. Before we are persuaded to do something or before we decide uh, on our own accord to do something that has long-term consequences and affect the lives of others, please stop and get the facts straight. So not only did Haman ingratiate himself with the king, but in effect, he offers the king a bribe. And in chapter 3, verse 9, if it pleases the king, oh, can't you just hear it dripping, you know? If it pleases the king, oh, you know, let a decree to be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver in the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. It's doubtful that Haman had such wealth. And the king may, may or may not have known, but he really refused to think about it. And so he just simply accepted Haman's offer. And it has been suggested that Haman expected to raise the money by confiscating the property of the Jews. Not only did he want to destroy them, but he was going to take everything they had for himself. Does that sound like something out of recent history? Huh. So the king accepts blindly. He doesn't inquire as to who the people were. He didn't inquire as to Haman's plans. He didn't ask Haman where he was going to get the money. He simply handed over his signet ring, which is considered, you know, you, you stamp it, you, you know, you put it there. That's the king's signature. That's the king's authority. He simply just handed over his authority to Haman. And the king was so 
uninterested, so blasé about the whole thing. He just gave the ring and he waved his hand and, and told Haman, you can keep the money, you know, just, just go and do what you want to do. He had no interest in protecting all of the people in his empire. He just didn't care. And in a blink of an eye, Haman drafted and he sent out dispatches by the couriers across the land with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, and little children. And on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. The plan was to exterminate the Jews in less than a year's time. And yet the king showed no concern. He didn't ask Haman who the people were, what his plans were. He didn't say, can I see those instructions before you sent them out so I could approve them? He didn't seem to care. In essence, he relinquished his authority to protect all the people of his land, and he gave Haman the authority to do as he wished. You have to understand that the Persian Empire was made up of many uh, nationalities. And after the edict went out, it says the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered because it's made up of many nationalities. The city was confused and confounded. And our dear Pastor Nick, many years ago, when he talked about on this passage, he said the many nationalities of Susa were probably wondering who would be next. I wrote that down, Pastor Nick. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so my takeaway lesson is this. Take your responsibilities seriously and use your position of power and or influence to do good for all. We all have influence. Do not abdicate your responsibility because of a friendship, because of undue influence, because of complacency. We all have influence. Let us use influence for the good of all people. So folks, be courageous. Graciously consider advice that you are being given. Listen for God's leading. Never seek revenge for yourself. Do the right thing always. Worship God only. And when it comes to making a choice between God and man, always choose God. Be forgiving. Get the facts straight before you make a decision and take your responsibility seriously and use your influence. If you want to be reminded of those points, Raven will have them for you at some point in the bulletin. Next week, Esther gets informed about what's going on. What will she do with the information that she gets? What decision will she make? I'll tell you next week, okay? All right, God bless.